1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another week of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. This week, I'm in beautiful Washington, D.C., where someone has... A leaf blower, not too far from my hotel room window, we are joined today by two people who I know if either became president, would immediately outlaw leaf blowers because of the noise they make. Is that not true, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law School?
0: Absolutely, David. I would also outlaw all people making noise, all cars and trucks, and everything else within five miles of me
1: i I love that attitude. it's extremely. <laughs> Extremely aligned with my own. Public what spirited. about? Yeah, exactly. What about you, Ed Lewis of the Financial Times?
3: Oh, I would go further than outlawing. I mean, I'd, I'd make leaf blowing a capital offense.
1: Yeah, you know why? Because electric leaf blowers exist. They're silent. You don't have to use gas leaf blowers that make all this noise.
0: But they still make noise. Not quite as much. They still make noise. We have to outlaw them too. People will just have to get used to leaves. There is nothing wrong with leaves. Leaves are natural. Leaves are normal. Leaves are nice. Just accept them.
3: Totally my position. Rose has summarized it. Why do we spend our lives blowing leaves away? I mean, I'd make electric leaf blowers like life sentence or something. I probably wouldn't have them executed, (laughs) but it, it, it would still
1: be a severe penalty. It's really interesting. I remember I took a stance like this in high school because my father wanted me to rake the leaves. And I felt that that was infringing on my rights and the Leave's rights. I said, I will have none of this. And I walked to a friend's house, which was something like eight miles away over a mountain. Well, (laughs) such as mountains exist in the middle of New Jersey.
3: That's, That's quite a protest. I used to get paid to mow the lawns. Did you? Yes.
1: And you were a paid mower of lawns? I was a paid mower of lawns. Do you um,
3: still offer that service, Ed? Yeah, I find um, it quite therapeutic.
1: Um yeah.
0: and and lawnmowers have been getting quieter. This is good to know. So people who need their lawns mowed should just contact ed, edward.lucid.ft.com. Is that right?
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think I think it's uh, something <laughs> quite different, but I forget what it is.
1: You forget, yeah. you forget what it is. Well, they can they can no doubt <laughs> tweet at you. Did you perform any childhood (laughs) chores like this, Rosa?
0: I was sometimes asked to do them. I didn't always perform them. But at times, I I agree with that, actually. From time to time, I would mow our lawn, and it was somewhat therapeutic. It's sort of like vacuuming or anything where you can see your progress as you go, and you can go in nice straight lines, and you feel a sense of accomplishment as the rectangle of shorter grass grows and so forth.
1: Very interesting. I once Also, did that, but we got a brand new lawnmower. And within eight feet of starting to mow the lawn, I hit a pipe under the lawn. The lawnmower exploded, shrapnel went everywhere. And I was excused from this chore forever. Because you still got paid. Yeah. Well, uh, no, no, we didn't know that's not how that worked in our household. We're also joined this afternoon by David Sanger of the New York Times, who is in some place. Where are you, David Sanger?
2: Uh, I'm in Vermont.
1: Oh, you're, you're in where, Vermont. Where,
2: where the leaves are turning.
1: Are we, you were delayed? We understand you had a, a, a tragedy with your dog. I'm sorry to hear. We,
2: we, we did indeed. A beautiful two-year-old pup who uh, unfortunately caught something at the last minute and oh, we weren't no. able to save. So. Oh. I'm so sorry, David. Very
1: painful. Sorry, David. Uh, for those of you who are listening, you're probably wondering what it is we're going to talk about of substance here today. And I you know, thought I would start with a couple of things, although I'm perfectly willing to open it to other things. But I was struck today by the fact that the United States Trade Representative made a long and detailed speech about US-China policy, in which the trade representative said that the Chinese had not made the progress that had been expected when the Trump administration demanded it of them, and that the United States would hold them to this kind of progress. And this reminded me that some people have called China policy under this administration sort of trump light. Because they have uh, time to time been tough on China like Trump was, this strikes me as a grotesque oversimplification of what is actually a fairly nuanced policy and on a whole variety of issues, from security to yeah. trade the human rights to human rights is actually uh, much more multifaceted than what we got under Trump. So I thought I'd start by asking each of you whether you uh, think we are moving in the right direction with
2: regard to US China policy let me start with you david oh well, i um i think you're right it is nuanced it's very different from president trump's but i can see why people make the claim because president biden has held on to some of the sort of bright shiny objects of the Trump policy, which starts with the, the trade sanctions. What strikes me about our relationship with China right now is that we have had probably less communication between the senior leadership of China and the United States than we have at any point since Tiananmen that The provocations on both sides have accelerated. The other thing that happened this weekend were a remarkable number of dozens of air incursions into the air identification zone for Taiwan. Last week, it was the U.S., or two weeks ago, the U.S. agreement with Australia to um, share nuclear-powered sub-technology that would enable the U.S. to bring submarines right up along the Chinese coast. Prior to that, we had the disputes over the Chinese crackdown on Hong Kong. So while I think it's a more nuanced policy, I also have to say that the relationship has probably gotten significantly worse in the past number of months. I'm not sure that's necessarily, that's not Joe Biden's fault. I think it has more to do with the way the Chinese have pursued a pretty aggressive policy. But we are clearly headed to a bad place if things stay on the current trajectory. Rosa, as soon as David said
1: submarines, I I knew I had to turn to you next. I know this is your favorite topic, but but I want to tell you something today, Rosa. I spoke to a very senior U.S. government official today over breakfast, and we were talking about just what uh, David is talking about here. And I referred to the deal with the Australians as the AUKUS deal. And he said, what you don't like referring to it as AUKUS. (laughs) And I then said, well, you know, on our podcast, Rosa Brooks, and he chimed in immediately and said, (laughs) Poe.
0: Um, I, I am well known throughout really Washington, D.C. and indeed the world for having having coined the term jigpoa, which is so, so suitable.
1: Well, yes, although he uh, he asserted that uh, actually that's now kind of the DOD pronunciation.
0: Excellent. The DoD, I mean, they,
1: DOD, they now refer to it as the Jikpoa. So
0: I am a but, woman of influence. <laughs> no, no.
1: There's no question about that. And if anybody out there has an acronym they would like people to pronounce, please go. Ask Rosa. She will handle it. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of David's uh, analysis here, including his unfounded assertion that the U.S. government is not talking to the Chinese government?
0: Yeah, that I don't know. I don't have any insight into that because my life is less glamorous than either of yours. I didn't have breakfast with a senior U.S. government official. I, I had breakfast with uh, you know a bunch of 16-year-olds today. So they didn't raise any of these issues at all, in fact. Um, though I was hoping they would help me prepare for this, but they, they really didn't. I, I, I do agree with the point that both you, you and David made um, that we absolutely should not be evaluating U.S.-China policy based on trade policy alone. Trump, I don't think it's accurate to say that Trump was, quote, tough on China. He was simultaneously somewhat arbitrarily tough in some ways and arbitrarily, or, or perhaps even worse, non-arbitrarily soft in other ways. You know, that the U.S.'s response to the crackdown uh, on pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong, for instance, Trump made it perfectly clear that he could care less about that and other human rights issues um, where the Chinese government was behaving extraordinarily badly. When you look across the board at the wide range of areas where the U.S. has has issues or concerns that might relate to China, Trump was tough on some and ridiculously embarrassingly silent or indeed, egging them on on others. You know, Trump's. I, I can't remember Trump's exact comment about Hong Kong, but it was it was beyond mere neutrality and indifference. It it was something something that was faintly encouraging. Of you know, good idea, to Lock Them Up, uh, which we know has been his his theme with everybody he doesn't like. I think what the Biden administration is trying to do is have that much more nuanced China policy, where we say, hey, you know, the fact that we are mad at you about some issues doesn't mean that we are not happy about other issues and we can work together. You know, they're they're looking, they're trying to thread that needle, you know, looking for areas where we can cooperate, looking for areas where we can collaborate, looking for areas where we can, we can, you know, actively work together, even as we recognize that there are areas where we're competitors. And in fact, there are areas where we're potentially adversaries. It's a really hard needle to thread. And I do think that it's a needle that if what David says is right, and, and I assume it is because. David Sanger knows stuff and has glamorous friends.
1: David Sanger is the is the newspaper of record.
0: That is my assumption that if David says it, it is it is word It is law. But if it is the case that we are not having those regular communications channels open at the highest levels, that makes it makes that effort to thread that needle even more perilous.
2: I wasn't suggesting that there's no communication, obviously. President Xi spoke with um, President Biden just about a month ago. We don't know a whole lot about that conversation. But the rich, multi level layers of communication that at moments we have had between the United States and China, think during the 2008 and 2009 financial crisis when there was pretty deep coordination on financial strategy. Think about even during the JCPOA or just POA, as you were insisting on calling it. We had China's deep involvement in containing Iran. We've had deep conversations before about North Korea. That level of daily back and forth that isn't happening right now. What's happening is the two leaders are sort of separating off into their own worlds, and you're beginning to see a bit of the economic disengagement
1: that we were so concerned about. Yeah just because, you know, it's the role that we play here on this podcast. Before I get to Ed here, I do want to point out that the president has spoken to them. The National Security Advisor has spoken to them on multiple occasions. The Secretary of State has spoken to them. Secretary of Treasury has spoken to them. The USTR was, in fact, through this discussion, not just talking about the rules they want to follow, but talking about re-engagement, something that the Chinese seem to be seeking with their recent move towards rejoining TPP. Obviously, DOD has had its own civilian military discussions, even including during the transition when uh, General Milley spoke to the Chinese, according to General Milley. But, you know, I I can't characterize the quantity of the discussions, but certainly there are plenty of high-level discussions going on now. Ed, what's your take on the relationship and how it's evolving?
3: Um, It's also nuanced, but I mean, I would say about the Catherine Tai announcement, I'm not surprised that she's keeping the various tariffs in place that Trump put in because they were there, and you you're not going to, even if you didn't agree with the rationale for their imposition in the first place by Trump, you know, you're not going to give up a, a, a lever unless you get something for it. But we should remind ourselves of what we said about Trump's pursuit of trade deals with China, which was that he had a strange sort of 1950s obsession, uh, you know, with things like steel and soybean and aluminium or aluminium, as you call it, and really very little understanding or interest in the stuff that matters, the 21st century trading flows and data flows that that are where the action is. He also, of course, withdrew America from the TPP or, or, or didn't join the TPP. And made the mistake famously, as did members of his staff, of believing that it was a group that included China. So now we're in a situation where, you know, we've got certainly not Trump light. It's definitely a different approach to the world, but we have foreign policy for the middle class. And foreign policy for the middle class essentially means no trade deals, no joining, no rejoining of the TPP or the CPTPP as it's now been renamed no um, commercial initiatives with America's partners and allies in the region, and China applying to join the CPTPP. So any one member of that group can veto China's application, and doubtless Australia would love nothing more than to veto China's application, and Canada probably too, given recent events. But if there is no sign of America rejoining um, in the next two, three years, China will get in. It's just the grand machine of the region. It's too big to ignore. It's not in compliance with a lot of the rules of this club, but it'll be able to negotiate some, something looking like compliance, and it will get in. And at that point, if America's not in it, and China is, that's a really big strategic own goal for the United States, which would be continuity between the Trump and Biden administrations. I think the Biden people know this, there's very there's a world of difference between them and the Trump people. you know people like Peter Navarro were, were, were nuts, people like Jake Sullivan, are very high caliber people. And I think they know this. Uh, well, I know they know this. We know they know this, but there is this belief that any kind of trade initiative is essentially political suicide in the United States. And I have a very hard time imagining the scenario by which you know that logic is going to change you know before say twenty
1: twenty four um
3: it's a it's a second term kind of thing to do
1: That's a really good point, Ed. and all three of you have noted that this is not really trump light policy, and you know Peter Navarro is a good example because he is, as one very senior other former Trump administration official referred to me, him to me as a fucking sociopath. Um, and then there is, you know, where we did engage, you know, it ranged from Ivanka's trademarks to Mike Pompeo flagging human rights abuses against Christians, but not against other people. So it was kind of spotty. But the question, David, that Ed raises is 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 right. Some of this is administration to administration. Some of this is the nature of China today, and some of it's the nature of the U.S. today. You know, it seems like it would be extremely politically unpopular to take a more relaxed attitude with China on trade. The American people view China as a principal competitor. And as I think we'll hear a little bit later in this week from the president of the United States. A lot of the rationale that people buy into for the investments the president's promoting in the Congress at the moment have to do with China. It's China policy, you know, in investing trillions of dollars into the U.S. right now. So we're more competitive, competitive is kind of the, the pillar of Biden-China policy, which is, of course, very different from what it was like under Trump. What do you say to that? It's, it's kind of more secular.
2: It's absolutely right. The one unifying political concept right now is unifying around competing with China. The China bill went through the Senate with a bipartisan majority, not a huge majority, but it passed comfortably. Nancy Pelosi has not brought it up in front of the House yet. I suspect because they don't want to add the numbers in that to the numbers in the two other bills that we're busy discussing here, because you begin to add another trillion or so over 10 years. So that's the good news. The good news is that we're going through the cycle that we went through when we were fearful of Japan in the late 1980s, a period of time when you remember, David, you were in commerce and uh, you would frequently see political parties manage to come together out of a concern about Japan. That
1: was the mid-90s when I was in commerce, but don't don't accuse me of being a member of the Bush administration, but go ahead. That's
2: right. That's right. You were there by mid-90s, but it was the same piece of politics at at that moment, which was you could actually go get bipartisan groups together with that. The difficulty that we're running into here, I think, is that at the core of the administration's nuanced policy, the nuance is that we can compete in many areas, that we can contain China militarily in other areas, and that we can cooperate in areas of mutual interest, climate, for example, or some of these trade issues, even some technology issues, North Korea, Iran. And I'm not just not sure the Chinese see it that way, because they also view the United States as in decline. It was interesting to see how they played the January 6th events while the Russians tried to open up the divisions. The Chinese played it back at home to basically make the point democracy isn't what it's cut cut out to be. We told you those Americans were in decline. And so my worry about the policy is not that uh, the Biden team hasn't thought out these categories of where you compete, where you contain, where you cooperate. It's that the Chinese just don't divide the world up that way. And if that's the case, I'm afraid we're headed to more of the kind of behavior that we've seen in the past few weeks, some of which has been more reminiscent of the Cold War than anything else, right? I mean, airplanes in Taiwan and the swaps of, you know, the Huawei executive for the Canadian and American held hostage. And that's just not a great place for the relationship to be.
1: I think it may be. Although again, you know, Rosa, one of the things that you hear sometimes is that, you know, China is trying to take over the United States' role on the international stage. But another way to look at it is China's trying to have the role that it deserves to have in an international system where that role has been artificially minimized for a long time, and whether that's in international financial institutions or or other kinds of structures, whereas the world's second largest economy or largest economy on a purchasing power parity basis, most populous country, it feels it deserves comparable status to the United States. So it's not taking something, it's trying to claim something it's due. What's your sense of that?
0: I don't think those are mutually exclusive. Um, You know, I think I think China is uh, both in terms of population, in terms of economic power, clearly is a major, major world power. And we ought to treat it as such because that's just the reality. We have to treat it as such because that's just the reality. I don't think that excludes the possibility that China is also not not merely trying to take its seat at a very small table, but actually hoping it can kind of discreetly elbow the U.S. Out of, the, out of its chair. I think both of those things are happening. I, 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 China, obviously, for a very long time, was more internally focused, uh, not as much externally focused in terms of expanding its sphere of influence. And in the last you know couple of decades, we've seen that change quite dramatically. I'm not sure. Nonetheless, I'd be interested to know what the rest of you think. I don't think the Chinese see themselves as the U.S. still, despite despite decline, sees itself as having a reason, a right to have its nose in every single pot. You know, I think I think the U.S. still thinks of itself that way. You know, we think if something if something bad or outrageous happens anywhere in the world, we automatically think that our president needs to make a statement about it one way or the other. We feel like we need to do something and we have a right to do something. We don't always do anything. But I think our self-image as a nation remains, uh, to use the old phrasing, Madeleine Albright, the exceptional nation. I don't think the Chinese see themselves as an exceptional nation on the world stage in the same way that we still do. I I think that they see it much more as hey, we're going to engage globally exactly to the extent necessary to further our interests and and no more. We're not trying to create a brand new global order for the heck of it. Uh, We're only trying to do what we need to do to advance our own interests. And I think that's a different kind of self-image, nationally speaking, and and that affects their actions around the globe. I don't know what the what the rest of you think.
1: You know, Ed, I'd love to know what you think. I think what Rosa just described there is both accurate and a refreshing change from the, oh, my God, they're trying to conquer the world and put us under their thumb point of view that some, particularly those on the right, are offering up.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's always been my concern with this bipartisan consensus is that, you know, there are different parts of the bipartisan consensus and that, you know, there's a, there's a world of difference between Tom Cotton's perspective on China as the new evil empire in which it's an all or nothing contest, kind of a Star Wars movie. And, you know, those in different parts of the spectrum who see China as a good way of the comp- competitive threat from China is a good way of justifying very essential domestic reforms. But it's a happy coincidence when they both, you know, vote for the America Compete that or whatever it's been renamed, Endless Frontier. I think if you compare it with the first Cold War, you know, the Soviet Union theoretically wanted to make the entire world like the Soviet Union. So there, was, there, were, there were no limits, theoretically, to the Soviet Union's ideological ambition. China, you know, wants Taiwan. I mean, that's that's non-negotiable, a question of when and how, and, and it's an extremely dangerous trigger point. And there are quibbles, but also you know, potentially very dangerous ones over the border with India across the Himalayas, and some of these atolls in the South China Sea, or all of them, in fact. But. It's not actually seeking any other territory. The Middle Kingdom sort of mindset of the Chinese, and this is something, you know, although I don't agree with Kissinger on everything, I think Kissinger is correct. There is a sort of civilizational continuity there. That is that, well, others should want to be like us, but we're not going to govern them directly. They can be tributary states. And, you know, we're not restless to explore the rest of the world. You should be deeply curious about how it's how it's done and we know how it's done and i think that's a less combustible cold war if we manage it correctly than the one with the soviet union it doesn't need to uh, be an all or nothing zero sum game and so i'm hoping that the sort of the more pragmatic end of this bipartisan consensus which is now in the white house will ensure it isn't just an indo pacific arms race because right now it's beginning to feel like that And whatever our intentions, if, as I said earlier, we've only got the sort of national security Pentagon stick to use, the golf club to use in this game, we don't have the commercial golf club in terms of that kind of outreach to the region, then accidents can happen. It can get self-fulfillingly tense and the arms race can get worryingly dominant and at the moment that would be my that would be my real concern
2: david one, one point on ed's good point on territories absolutely right there is we don't have that degree of territorial competition but we do have something new that wasn't available in the cold war back then and that's the question of network control right so what's huawei all about huawei is about Being able to spread China's control and influence by making sure that states around the world, and particularly in Africa and Latin America and parts of Europe, that they can pick away from NATO and so forth, are using the combination of Huawei and China Telecom and undersea cables laid by Chinese firms. And I think they recognize that network control is both a lot less politically challenging than trying to grab territory and probably more useful to them. You know, the problem with the Cold War analogy is it makes you think literally about the Cold War. Go right yeah, ahead. And start.
1: Also, also, as you will acknowledge, and uh, as uh, Edward Snowden pointed out to all of us, they weren't the first superpower to do that. No, no, we had network control because, you know, Al Gore invented the Internet. and uh, so God bless him. And and he's yeah. gotten paid for it, I might add. Yeah. By the way, David, is the fact that Instagram and Facebook is down today as we record this part of your next big HBO documentary?
2: You know, uh, it's a good question. I, I know that they are down Got a lot of strange outages today. Some of them seem to go back to... Including the Belfer Center at Harvard, where you... That's that's right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the interesting questions is, is this the vulnerability of our network infrastructure, or is this someone messing with our network infrastructure? But it is pretty interesting to see the degree to which parts of the country's interchange economic activity come to a halt even when you have accidental outages, that was the lesson of Colonial Pipeline, where the hackers weren't even trying to close down the shipment of gasoline and diesel fuel and jet fuel up the East Coast, but it happened as a preventative. So we're going to probably have a chance to learn a lot. Not the first time that Facebook has gone down, but you know that is now as critical as learning that the phone system went down. Yeah, well, to Dan bon, to, to uh, Dan Bongino, at least
1: it is as critical. Yes, uh, it's, it's Facebook being a platform for the distribution of lunatic uh, right wing uh, stuff, typically in its top ten lists every, every day. Rosa, I, I I know that you hate it when I sort of change the subject and move to something really arcane that has just broken, Uh-oh. Uh, but. But I'm sure you've poured over all of the releases regarding the Pandora papers and the quote revelation that, you know, sort of rich politicians in countries around the world were hiding their money offshore, which is definitely. I was shocked. Dog bites man. But there was one piece of information in here that was shocking, right? And that's that Sioux City. South Dakota has become is it Sioux City Sioux Falls South Dakota has become one of the great offshore banking capitals of the world and that something like 350 billion dollars is tucked away in banks in South Dakota now you often spend time in America's great plain states being a, a woman drawn to the prairie uh, your love of prairie dogs or something, whatever it is that draws you there. Silos. 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 Oh yeah, it's silos. Your search for silos. How weird is that?
0: David, your grasp of geography remains weak, but nevertheless, there was a weird internet. South Dakota's meme. not in the middle someplace? I don't go to South Dakota.
1: <laughs> oh, I know, but don't you, you go, go to, to Wyoming? Isn't that Yeah, mountains. there?
0: Mountains. 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 Oh, I <laughs> Um, but um, there was a weird internet meme a few years ago. You can actually Google this and you, you will discover this weird internet meme if you haven't already come across it. And the internet meme was that Wyoming did not actually exist, that it was you know, a fake state and nobody actually lived there. And there was in fact, no such place. Um, so perhaps there is no such place as Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, and that's why it is considered an excellent place to hide your money. That's the only explanation I can come up with. Is that the non-existent?
1: I mean, is that is pretty, a brilliant explanation. It's
0: spreading. It is spreading uh, to neighboring states
1: that are that also don't exist.
0: That also don't exist, or at least have selected cities that don't exist, so that they can have accounts that are hidden and don't really exist. Um, but yeah, I, I more seriously. Um, on the one hand, the these these Pandora Papers, as you say, it's it's uh, you know, dog bites man. This is not this is not a shocker. That there is a lot of corruption amongst political leaders in many parts of the globe, and that there are a lot of rich people who got rich by evading uh, tax laws and so forth, and that there are a lot of criminals hiding their money. We, we we knew this already. That being said, the specificity, I think, you know, how this will actually shake out, we don't know yet. But this, I think, has the potential to do serious damage to a number of political officials around the world, and potentially you know, bring down some government. So it will be very interesting to see how it shakes out.
1: Yeah, well, that, it's always, that's always an interesting development. Um, Ed, what's your take on this? There were a lot of newspapers out there doing very heavy breathing about this this morning. I, I noticed the New York Times, by the way, David, was not one of those newspapers. It kind of had the story tucked away, but was not getting overly exercised about it.
2: Well, the Times is not a member of this international consortium that got these documents all at at one time.
1: Anyway, Ed, did
2: you have a take on this?
1: Uh, I I shared your
3: Sioux Falls. I I didn't realize the role it was playing. Um, By the way, there's there's a state, a fictional state called North Dakota. I saw that there was that movie Fargo, um, which sort of invented it. No, that's not real. That's not real either. No, that doesn't exist. (laughs) I thought it did for a while. One of the things that most struck me is that the trillionaires here at home, don't need to use any of this because the existing onshore tax system is totally fine. They don't pay anything anyway. And that, that to me is actually, it's who isn't on that list and why they don't need to be on that list that to me is the sort of most salient thing. Uh, you know, I didn't know about Kim, King Abdullah of Jordan's, the value of his properties. You know, I'm sure that the uh, the prime ministers of the Czech Republic in Chile are going to be going through hot water, as Rosa mentioned. Uh, last time, man, with the Panama Papers, uh, you know, we had various people toppled like Nawaz Sharif in Pakistan. And I see Imran Khan's got all his cronies or a lot of his cronies are on this Pandora list. So there are going to be all kinds of little local um, bombs going off about about some of these revelations. Also remember that last time Putin thought incorrectly that this was um, a personal Hillary Clinton project and that this was being this was actually a U.S. government arranged leak to expose and embarrass the fact that, you know, his cello teacher is worth two billion dollars, a very, very highly paid cello teacher. The time that our cultural leaders are paid
1: with, they're deserving.
3: Yeah, it's a much better hourly rate than the minimum wage. And, uh, and various other, I think, is like judo teacher, and God knows. But the, this had real-world consequences. Putin fears financial exposure, as we've seen domestically with Navalny and with the videos about his palace, you know, and dachas and so forth. Putin really feels, uh, fears this, or kleptocrats, autocrats really fear this. So, you know, there could be, there could be um, consequences that we can't yet anticipate. But my bottom line here is, You know, Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, none of them are on this list
1: because they don't need to be. I think Elon Musk actually is on this list. Maybe he
3: is. But, you know, the
1: the broader point stands. I agree with you, David, as uh, our um, um, cyber guru in chief, doesn't this and I guess this is going to have to kind of be our last word here, but doesn't this underscore the notion that. Things like banking secrecy may be a thing of the past.
2: They've been a thing of the past for a while. And my favorite, I haven't read all of what has been um, published here, but my my favorite moment in these papers was when one banker in some email was quoted as warning somebody else about observing their banking secrets because we can't have another Panama Papers. Well, his email was, review, was revealed in another Panama Papers. And Washington Post made a big deal of a uh, apartment in, um, uh, I think, Monaco that is allegedly owned by uh, a woman who is said to have had Putin's child or something like that. I don't know how many of those specifics, which, you know, are probably better for the tabloids than for um, anything else, are true. But what certainly is true about this is that the era of banking secrecy, where you could lock something up on paper only in uh, a Swiss bank is over. And that what this, these papers enabled people to do was basically pierce the secrecy that goes behind shell companies. So what was interesting about the Putin apartment or the apartment allegedly belonging to um, Putin's alleged mit- mistress or something is that it was designed as a shell company within a shell company, and they were still able to go trace the ownership. And I think that's that's sort of the future.
1: It is. And, you know, in that respect, maybe not such a terrible thing. Rosa, I know that you have asserted Sioux Falls is not a real place. Have you ever been to Sioux Falls?
0: I think I have, David, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it didn't exist. I mean, my GPS thought I was there some. Right Interesting,
1: Ed. Have you ever been to Sioux Falls? Uh, I have not. I'm. I.
3: am i i tend to rectify that. I've. You've know, got so much cash. I need to disguise
1: the 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 loose portion. <laughs> slushing around everywhere. Yeah. No. It's,
0: it's made me feel like a, a, a sort of a loser, as Trump would say. I. I don't have any offshore accounts.
2: There are entire. I was, I was looking for ads in the Pandora Papers, but I can tell you, I have been to Sioux Falls. You have. I have. I have. Uh, I think I was there on it It was either a a presidential trip or another government trip. I wasn't there for long, but it did seem to exist and um, actually seemed like a pretty pleasant
1: place. There you have it. The New York Times confirms South Dakota exists. That's right. And uh, Ed's money is not
2: there. There are Cayman Islands named Ed's money was not there at the time that I was in Sioux Falls. I cannot speak to the question of whether Ed's money is there.
3: The the problem, the problem is, is, you know, it's illiquid. We we tried to put Downton Abbey on the market. You know, so theoretically, we're very wealthy, but we just can't liquefy these assets.
1: (laughs) Downton Abbey is, in fact, owned by Ed's family. Ed was raised at Downton Abbey as all of you know and please tweet at him for baby pictures of him romping around the grounds uh there as a as a as a young boy on his pony named George the 3rd in in any event uh folks uh thank you for joining us again this week i found your discussion about china to be the most nuanced and reasonable discussion about china i've heard anywhere in a long time Well, I expect nothing less of you, but I hope folks are listening in the government and elsewhere. And uh, we will be back next week with more discussion of all of this. If you want more information about what's new and bubbling up here in the deep state, go to the DSRnetwork.com, click membership, be a member, support what we're doing. And I can promise you this over the next couple of weeks. You will see we are doing some new things in some new ways, and it's going to be darned exciting for you. Your life is going to get better multiple ways, thanks to us. So keep an eye on the DSRnetwork.com. In the meantime, thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, David. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Join us again soon and uh, be uh, careful out there. Bye-bye.